race creates identity, but it is not identity. And I think, you know, that's not very difficult to understand. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are, so, I'm just grinning, I'm grinning, I'm grinning on the mic, I'm grinning on the mic. We have got, literally, I'm just going to say it, listeners, previous guests, I'm so sorry, but this is my favourite, this is my favourite academic is in the building. <laughs> Professor Alana Lenton, come on. <laughs> we might need some horns. Can we have some? <laughs> Professor Alana Lentin over from Western Sydney University is in London with our Surviving Society. We are so excited to have you here with us, Alana. Thank you. Um, People will know, regular listeners to the show obviously will have heard Alana on the show before, but via Zoom, but also will have heard that Alana is literally one of the top I want to say three or five scholars that we cite on this show. So much of the the thread of the show um, is inspired by Alana's work. So much of what we talk about and how we reflect and critique the ways we think about race and class come down to a lot of what Alana has written about over the years. And I think that obviously you always talk about yourself in coalition with other people. I know you're one of the amazing scholars that say, I don't work in isolation, I work with other people, yeah. I build on other people's work, but equally, like, I do think we have to give um, people like you their flowers because you do, you do, like, you inspire us, you inspire us. Anyway, you really, really, really do. Thank so you. it's really, really exciting to have you on the show. George is so excited. Um, <laughs> George is actually the most excited like, Everyone will know, everyone that's listening to the show, that George is our resident angry elf. Um, <laughs> And he's literally, and he's, that was Tisa that said that originally. Alana is also um, George's favourite academic, and maybe person. Um, (laughs) um, But Alana, so you're over, you're in Europe, you've been in Europe for about 10 days now. Um, You're here, in total, you're here for three weeks. Yes. How does it feel to be back? Because just to to say, can you just do a tiny, tiny little plotted history of how you end up in Sydney, just for the listeners, to remind them? Yeah, I mean, like, firstly, I feel, I have to say, I, I feel a big sense of relief. And I know that saying that is going to sound, it always, it's jarring for my colleagues and comrades in so-called Australia, um, but I am European. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is my home continent. I remember I met, I'm going on a little, you know, divergence here, but I met met Etienne Balibar years and years ago, not name dropping, but I really admired him and he, you know, he, I use his work a lot in my thesis, my PhD thesis. And when I was doing my postdoc, I had the chance to meet him, have a coffee. And he was asking me about my background and where you're from, you know, where your family from and all the rest of it. And he's Jewish as well. He's mm. French. And uh, I was telling him, you know, my, my father's family is from Lithuania, but my great grandfather migrated to Ireland in the late um, 19th century, very end of the century. And my mother's family is from Romania and they left basically at the end hour in 1940, and they emigrated to Palestine and so on. And then, you know, my father met my mother and then, you know, I grew up in Ireland, right? So it's kind of bizarre being an Irish Jew because like we were a very, very small, mm. a very small kind of community and it was very isolating and there's quite a lot of anti-Semitism and so on. And he said to me, you're the quintessential European. <laughs> and it's always stayed with me because I was, at, you know, I had just finished my PhD at the European University Institute, which is this kind of like bastion of 
European mythologizing about European identity and politics and what it means to, and it's extremely Eurocentric. And doing a thesis on race was massively difficult there because I was almost the only person working on race at all. And certainly my PhD supervisor knew nothing about it. He was extremely sympathetic and knowledgeable on a whole host of issues, but he knew nothing about race. Mm. Anyway, so when I come back here, I do feel like, yeah, like I'm home. But I went to Australia. I mean, you know, it's interesting because I think we were very disillusioned, particularly with the UK. I'd been at Sussex University for six years. And I seem to have this problem where everywhere I go, I find myself being the only person doing race. Mm. And so there were so few people doing race at Sussex at the time. And now there's a whole host of people. I kind of wish I'd stuck around to, to, to meet them, yeah? Younger people than me. You know, we were talking earlier about you know, our, our fave, Alison Phipps, and she mm. and I worked together at Sussex, but Alison wasn't really working on race at that time, and now she really is, so mm. it's it's amazing. We had, a, we had a chat together recently, and it was amazing to see how much our work has converged, and I love her work. Um, mm. so, so I was kind of frustrated with that, and I think, you know, Sussex is in Brighton. You know, there's, there's, there's stuff there around just basic things, like what can you afford when you mm. have a small family and a baby? I had a baby at the time. I couldn't come up to London because I was a parent. Everything seemed to be happening in London around race issues. And I was really isolated, stuck there. And then this opportunity came to go to Sydney. And, and the university just looked like my dream because on paper, it's a university where there are almost no white students at all. Mm. Like literally, there are, and it's funny, it's a multi-campus university. So kind of, and this is really about the geography of Sydney. Um, there are certain campuses that are much more white and certain campuses where literally you struggle to see a white person. Mm. So for me, going, and, and, and it has been true, working there among mainly racialized young people has just, been, has just been wonderful because I don't have to explain basic principles to people. That doesn't mean that everybody comes in with like, they know everything there is to know about race because obviously it's not taught. And very often this will be the only opportunity they ever have to take a course on race, which is massively problematic. Mm-hmm. But I don't have to tell them, I don't have to convince them that racism exists. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that's kind of a little, the intellectual history, I suppose, of how I, it's how re- I arrived there. It's really interesting you should say that, Alana, because we were recently, I won't name the university, but we were recently working with some colleagues at a university that was outside of a city or outside of a city in the UK. Um, and the academics were talking about and there were a combination of social scientists and humanities um, scholars about how in the last sort of five years how difficult it's been uh, teaching um, Mm. on race and class um, and history because of what students would bring in into the room Mm. and how much more hostile it has become and I was like wow yeah and they were like you see like when you're watching the news or you see like how when you get in like the sort of is it Vox Pop are they called Vox Pop yeah yeah. yeah. like we have that in the seminar room Mm. and for us it's frightening at times yeah Um, and I was like wow like I, I obviously I know that that stuff is happening but I don't know to hear to hear other scholars talking about how things have changed even in the last few years in teaching obviously white students yeah. um, in this way and obviously some students of colour as well um, that will um, say some things that are very reductive when it comes to race. Um, but yeah, I think it's yeah. I think it's something that is is really interesting. Who protects those people? Um, well, often lecturers do. I mean, this yeah. is, and it's often you know students of colour. For example, just anecdotally, I heard a story from somebody at another university in Sydney, and she said. You know, we'd go into the classroom and somebody would say something really, really racist. racist. And I said, and what did the lecturer do? Like being naive. And she said, nothing. It's just like viewpoint diversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, that's (laughs) viewpoint diversity. And that's, 
I guess in the last few years, I, I don't want to be, don't want to be presentist because these things have always mm. kind of existed, but they've evolved into something really. And that's what I was saying to you before. Like, what does it feel like being in Europe? Because yeah. I feel like, I just feel like it's changed like so much. Yeah. In what way do you think it's changed? I feel just anecdotally, I feel much more unsafe. Mm. I feel much more unsafe, definitely. Definitely. And I think that's a racialized and gendered um, thing. Mm. Much more unsafe. I feel like, yes, in my lived experience, I feel much more unsafe. But within the kind of broad coalitions of us, like anti-racist, people that are looking to find solidarities, I feel like that work has become even like so much harder. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's a combination of knowing that there's like people that are feeling much more, uh, feel heart feel like my presence is a threat to them but mm. also those that are within the the people that we broadly agree on on things on things i feel like those those quote-unquote echo chambers have become harder as well to be around i just feel like you were saying yeah. when you first got in here like the crossroads it's very difficult i feel it's the europeans they doubt themselves that's what i see they see they doubt and they don't have that confidence that they used to have that they are number one Yes. And, and it's manifested in uncertainty and fear and anger, but it's the doubt I see in them. Because for the first time, like the, the debate about statues. Yeah. So the debate about statues, I'm saying to them, actually, I want more history. And they're saying, no, you're trying to take it on. So no, I actually want more. Yeah. Mm. But they, they and, that, and that idea of that you're filling in the gaps causes them mm. to doubt their supremacy. Mm. And this is what I see manifesting streets though yeah and so you're seeing that as he's saying on a structural basis but i do feel like very much in our micro social relations as well we're seeing that yeah, even more one. so but then then just bringing the hope just in, yeah, instantly yeah. now the level of consciousness amongst people who were previously not engaging in ways which could possibly increase and or make better their material social lives mm. of more people is I'm seeing that as well. So I'm seeing, yeah. do, do, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's a, that's why it's such a it's a dialectic. I mean, I yeah. think I think you know I think what you're saying, Tiso, is completely correct. I think that there's this white lash that we keep talking about, and I think and it's always been, and this is not new, and this is why you say it's correct not to be presentist. These are cycles where there's constantly uh, retaliation against anything that looks like success of resistance, right? Mm. Um, and I think that there's a deep knowledge, and I think we've talked about this before, there's a deep knowledge among, let's say, white people, but, you know, we, we're talking about whiteness as a kind of more, you know, a structural concern that something is no longer tenable, right? That it's no longer sustainable and that this is life as we know it. And it's not just about race and nation and colonialism and those histories and those the present of colonialism, but it's also about climate mm -hmm. and particularly in this idea and the pandemic, which I think has really accelerated this in terms of this fragility of life and all of this kind of coming at the same time. If you think about the Black Lives Matter uprisings, 2020, but also the longer durée of that, this is kind of a mounting feeling of panic, I think, mm -hmm. among the ruling class where things are shifting and there's also a deep realization among I think younger I mean there's a deep realization from that class that younger people are not interested in the let's call them the old-fashioned structures of the ways of doing politics 
and the ways of organizing society that we've been used to. If you look at the young, I'm talking about the Z generation, like my daughter's mm-hmm. generation, they don't think about voting and things like that. They, they really, their they're way of thinking politically, even if it's nascent, you know, they're very young, but they're thinking about it in completely new and innovative ways. I mean, think about gender and that entire kind of eruption of gender categories that for young, these young people make absolutely no sense anymore. So all of these people of, you know, let's say the old, it's not just about mm-hmm. age, mm-hmm. it's also about class and race and, and, and gender identity and so on. All these things are feeling really shaky mm. and people are are retaliating and they're retaliating with violence. And of course, they have they still have the power structures on their side. And so they're able to use the state carceral system and the police and so on in order to enact untold violence. And that's only in the context that we're aware of. Then if we take that globally, the mounting fascism around the world is, you know, all of this is, is connecting up in extremely dangerous ways, I think. So even though we have this fertile, I think irreverent, if you like, yeah, this kind of resistance coming from below, it's still fragile in comparison to the strength of the of the power that we're, that, that we're being confronted with. It's like I was saying, thinking about the young people, how do you even see concepts like work? Mm. They don't see work in, this, in that narrow sense as how the older generation see it, like yeah. nine to five, tied to an office. There's because it doesn't exist. It doesn't, There's yeah. no such thing. Mm. They have absolutely, because they know very well that what is a nine to five today? Mm-hmm. You know? and, and as you said, that's completely sped up because of the pandemic yeah, as well. The exactly. pandemic has literally shown that all these categories, all these things that we were saying we need to do can just stop overnight. Exactly. And certain, you know, certain security people thought that they would have. I mean, you know, even somebody like myself, I don't think I can, I don't consider myself naive. But you do think that when something so earth shattering happens, that somehow the state will be there. You see the complete absence of the state, apart from in a punitive sense. Okay, like some kind of some measures of protection that were temporary that, you know, were needed and and luckily came in, but then very, very quickly taken away. But generally, the role of the state has been to contain people and to punish people. And there's still the same populations that have always been contained and punished, even while being those who are at the extreme end of you know, the ill effects of the pandemic and, and, and so on. And so people can see that. And then why would they trust anything, you know? I think the problem, though, is that, you know, you had this kind of, this potential for things like mutual aid and, and, and solidarity networks on the grassroots, but very quickly the material conditions of life have eroded those because because there hasn't been any leeway or any, you know, any kind of room for manoeuvre for people to actually continue that. And that's, you know, and, and I think that's willful, that's purposeful. I, th- I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting slash shocking, we've we've touched on it a few times over the past few years or mm-hmm. uh, since um, the pandemic started. And I think um, Dan Rennick spoke about it oh, as well. Yeah. But um, And I know I, t- I spoke about it anecdotally with my family, but the blatant eugenics mm-hmm. as well yeah. that we don't, we don't even know the half of. Like yeah. I saw an article in The Guardian the other day about uh, a mother talking about her... Um, daughter with Down syndrome yeah. who was not given um, they're trying to produce an inquiry now possibly basically neglected had got COVID and was basically ticked off a list yes. to, to not yes. be to yes. not be saved and I literally saw this happen with my husband's chemotherapy treatment he oh. got his chemotherapy because he was 40, a 40 year old man and he was seen as like yeah. someone that do you know what I mean yeah. so I literally saw that 
I saw that article in the paper and I was like, there must be so much of that. Yes, and of all course. that's got to happen is those people have got to come together. But it, that's going to obviously take a long time. But we, I just feel like we don't even know the half of what the state have, are hiding or what they've been doing. Completely. I was talking to my brother about this this morning because he volunteers at a food bank, packing mm. food and delivering food. And he said, I honestly don't know how these people live. He was bringing food to a woman who is blind. I won't tell you the whole story because mm. obviously it's an intimate story that's not my business to tell. But basically there were these people who are completely neglected and if it wasn't for these people volunteering, they would have nothing to eat. Mm. And it's very, very basic stuff. Mm. And the, as you say, these are basically expendable lives. They're disposable, as you know, Zygmunt Bauman would have written. Mm. Just we don't need to think about these people from the perspective of the state and from the perspective of the majority of society. Mm. You know, mm. They're worthless lives. And that is, that's nothing new. Mm. But I guess it's something that naively people who believe in the liberal project or the liberal d democratic project would have hoped that by this stage would have, you know, yeah. petered out by now or would have been resolved. We would have found solutions. And what and I think this is where, you know, talking earlier about Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work, this is where her work is so, so clear on this, that it really is about creating categories of populations that are expendable in order to you know, so that the state doesn't have to take care of these people and that we give this illusion. This is this article that I was um, I read, in fact, this morning on the anti-state state. So it gives this illusion that the state has retreated from people's lives, that we have more freedom. And that's what we want. So we want to pay less tax. We want the state out of our lives. We, you know, don't tell us what to teach in schools and don't tell us what blah, blah, blah. But actually, under cover of that, the state is the incursion into the lives of these expendable populations is more extreme than ever before. And the neoliberal state is actually extremely authoritarian. It's just that there are people who don't see that unless they have to see it. And it's those people because they're the ones who are the elites. Those are the ones, you know, or even people in the middle who kind of can fly under the radar. And even and the shocking thing is that even the pandemic has not managed to Take the, the the middle people. Yeah. It that is what is mad about it. Like we know, we all know in this room, people that know what's happening, and they're just like, that's that's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are accepting of it. Like that's how extreme it is. Is it something to do with the the, the way the nation state has evolved? Like you had the absolute monarch, and he's not really he's in your life, but not mm. really in your life. And does the state operate in that same kind of way? I'm not too sure. I'm, I'm trying to think historically. How does this situation, how do we even end up here in a situation where... I don't know. I mean, you're the historian. You know more about it than <laughs> I, mean, I no, do. But previously, you've been talking to you about it be us going, it feeling like... It feels feudal. Yeah, it, feudal. You've been talking it, about it, it being feels feudal. feudal. Yeah, Interestingly, yeah. I was listening to a podcast on this. Yeah. I think it was Evgeny Morozov. And he says, there's a whole... The I, I, and this is not my area, so don't <laughs> cite me, but yeah. it's worth looking into. He said, there's a whole thesis apparently today of this that we're now in neo-feudalist yeah. times. Yeah. And he yeah. says that's not true. He said that this is basically capitalism, capitalism, capitalism. It's very mm. interesting. I think it's on the dig... Um, that podcast there. I'm sure um, they won't mind me mentioning their name because I know they're always happy to have debates about this stuff. But just think about the things we're talking about now and thinking about how we in here think about um, racial capitalism, how we yeah. think about race, how we think about class. So there was an event that you and Gargi did together mm. um, and you were talking about racial capitalism. Gargi was saying that perhaps in, in the context of things we're talking about now, perhaps it's not about race anymore. Perhaps we don't need to talk about race anymore. I don't think I agreed with the majority of what she was saying but I do understand and I do kind of think that there needs to be that thread of analysis mm. within how we come to understand this moment 
I yeah. think that in fairness to Gargi, I think they were saying something slightly different. Okay. Because we subsequently um, had a, a meeting because we're going to write a paper together on ah, this, right? Okay, but cool, then cool. it got interrupted. Sorry, Gargi. <laughs> <laughs> it got interrupted by life, yeah. etc. And and it's been a while since that conversation, so I'll try to reconstruct. And there were loads of ideas flowing around. It was it great. It was a great event. Yeah, it but also the subsequent conversation, like we recorded it, but I haven't listened back to it, so there's a lot there, and and I don't want to misrepresent. But as far as I understood, it wasn't so much about not making race central, but it was about not reworking old scripts. Fine. So reverting yeah. to kind of the way in which we've analysed race or the way in which anti-racism is done using particular ways into it that haven't... It's not that they haven't been successful, it's just that they, they are not necessarily adapted to the times that we're in. And that's quite different to saying that, oh, let's not talk about racism yeah. anymore because, you know, how do you convince people who don't want to be convinced? Or, you know, once mm -hmm. once you've said that, then it's done and there's nothing to say about it anymore. It's not about that. It's about saying, well, we just need to look at this from different angles. And I think that's absolutely right. And this actually speaks to something that, so the last two days I was in Brighton with um, a bunch of really smart people, much more smart than me, who, you know, and we were talking about, so we were actually talking about um, Cedric Robinson and black Marxism and we wanted to talk about, well, how do people use the concept of racial capitalism in their work? And we started out with a quote from the very beginning of chapter one of Black Marxism, in which he talks about sort of the, you know, the evolution of race in Europe, and he uses the concept of racialism. And, and I don't want to get into all of that, but what it unleashed as a conversation was thinking about, well, do we need new terminology? Like what so, so the concept of racialism is something that I would consider very outdated. So something like Enoch Powell would have said, like, I'm not a racialist. You know, yeah. there was this idea that, that that word and then people tended to say racist more because that implied a kind of a political project or an ideology. And then, you know, as you know, I've made the case we're talking about race as a technology of power and moving away. Well, not necessarily moving away from racism, but explaining what the relationship between race and racism are is and, and you know and how it's not as simple as you know racism simply being the ideological whatever construct of you know based on the idea of races because we don't want to accept this idea that there's a taxonomy of races that exist in the objective natural world but we want to talk about race as a political project and a you know a mode of kind of production reproduction of well i would say white supremacy but we could talk about i like actually geraldine heng's uh, notion which i also use to a certain extent i mean i used it and i didn't actually know that she'd also used it and then she talks about, you know, differentiation, this project. So so the idea of race is in order to difference, differentiate populations in order to better manage them, right? Mm -hmm. And Cedric Robinson says something very similar. So the point is, I guess, the reason why I'm talking about this is how do we complicate how we're thinking about these things? And do we need better or different slightly terminology? So do we need to revisit a concept like racialism in the way that Cedric Robinson was using it in order to be better at explaining what we're talking about. Because unfortunately, when you say race to people, particularly, I suppose, in the US context, they just think, well, black people, white people, you know, Asian mm -hmm. people, and, that, and you know, it's a taxonomy, it's a way of categorizing. But actually, how do we get across without doing an, an entire, you know, lecture? How do you get across? Well, no, that's not actually what I mean by race. So maybe this concept, so I think, I don't think Gargi's point was about terminology. Mm -hmm. It was much more complex than that. But I do think that finding better and different language to be more precise, but at the same time more all-encompassing. Because the problem with definitions is that they narrow us very often. Mm. And the problem with race is because it constantly morphs and, you know, and because its very purpose is in order to, to be in this constantly productive mode and to change and adapt to circumstance, you're 
way of talking about it to not say a definition needs to be much broader as well. Mm. So it needs to be specific and broad at the same time, which is actually really, really hard, right? And mm. it's hard, you know, when you're talking about an anti-racist project, which still needs to bring people on board. It needs not to be too intellectualizing. It needs to be connected to people's everyday concerns. And, you know, it's mm. really tough. I feel like we've, we've obviously spoken to you about this, Alana, but just thinking about Debbie Bargalli's work and you, the writing you come together and also thinking about France Windance Twine's work yes. on racial literacy. Like, even just coming back to when I hear, like, and I have heard this live, um, uh, another black scholar, a black scholar saying to me, well, my race does this. I'm like, what the hell? How yeah, are we still yeah, here? Yeah. Like, how are we still here? So maybe, yeah, you're right, that we have to go back to the basics. Like, why does mm. someone think that they can call themselves a race? You're not yeah. a race. Like, you are racialized. <laughs> it's very different. Yeah. It's difficult. And in a sense, that's what race does because it yeah. creates identity. So, you know, I say something like, you know, race creates identity, but it is not identity. And I think, you know, that's not very difficult to understand, but there's something that people want to cling to. Yeah. And like, for example, I had this conversation, sort of this Twitter conversation the other day, and I was saying, you know, I like, I, I'm not wedded to it, but I do like the idea of negatively racialized simply because, you know, it's not that there are racialized people and then neutral people, mm -hmm. you know, it's just to evoke the idea that white people are also racialized. And somebody said, and I completely, you know, I took her point. She said, I don't want to refer to myself as being negatively racialized. It doesn't feel right. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But mm. for me, I would be like, well, I'm Jewish. Mm. You know, that's my identity or I'm European, as I said earlier. Or you might be, you know, this person, mm. I think maybe they're Lebanese or whatever mm. it is. Whatever way you describe yourself, that's not important. But you don't, I don't think it's necessary to describe yourself according to your racial ascription because that's something that's been imposed on you. Whether or not people have, you know, taken it and kind of used it for solidaristic purposes, mm. I still think we need to retain that notion that race is something that's imposed. It wasn't asked for. No. And I think with the with the negatively racialized stuff, the person that helped me with that, reconcile with that and actually use it in a way which I think actually helps talk about this stuff was um, Levi Gaiman. He was oh, like, yeah. look at it in the Fanonian sense of mm. the social reproduction of being negatively racialized. Yeah, exactly. so it's not like you are the negatively racialized. You're not it's the a negative person. Yeah, yeah, it's the production of race and it becoming negative you becoming negatively racialized through social relations and structures like think of it in that way I don't maybe know. negatively is the wrong word and i can understand why people you know, have a visceral response to it and i'm thinking ever since that conversation i actually do want to think about what would be better terminology because mm -hmm. i do think evolving our language is really important because we are in the end of the day trying to communicate to people yes right we're not just like yes. farting around in our yes. <laughs> you yes. know in our notebooks yeah. or whatever this is the thing, I think trying to be more precise, mm. doing that thing, trying to reconcile the two things, being very precise, but also being very inclusive and being, being almost universalistic, it's, it's difficult. Very. But this is, but isn't the one of the problems of the Enlightenment? You're trying to reconcile these two things that don't, they don't seem to go together. They never will go together. Alana's a close listener to the show. You'll know that that's something that I feel like we comes up quite a lot. Yeah. As in, so uh, this I is a, this that struggle, that, stuff, that, yeah. that reconcile, having that language, be precise, mm. but also the idea we have these binaries. Yeah. How do you tease that out in language? Like This is why we say, you know, I've received some backlash for this concept of racial literacy, which, as you rightly said, mm. I did not come up with. It's yeah. not my concept. I just think it's a good concept it's for, one, for yeah. thinking about. Mm. But people have said... And I find this really objectionable, not towards me, but towards Lani Guinier and Francis Windenstein oh, Twine and other people who've used this concept like 20 years before I even mm. thought about it. Say, oh, are you trying to tell us we're stupid? Like, you know, we're, you know we're, we're ignorant and we need to read more. And I'm like, no, the point is that we need together to sit down and tease out the contradictions and the dialectics mm. and the relationalities between these different things. 
and the ways in which they change. And how are we going to do that unless we have a basic language, a basic literacy? I love that from actually um, Marcus uh, Gilroy, where who has an interview with um, another podcast I was listening to that Max Haven had. I can't remember the name of the podcast. Anyway, and he was talking about literacy as a form of solidarity. Mm. And I just thought that was absolutely brilliant because he's saying it's not about education. It's not about literacy in the sense of like, you know, reading and writing, which is obviously, you know, it's important. But we're talking about building people through this kind of dialogical situation, almost like in the Paolo Freire kind of, Mm. you know, I the, the student learns from the teacher and the teacher learns from the student. And this evolves together. That's what I mean by racial literacy. In order to empower people, I mean, empower has become one of those co-opted words, but you know mm. what I mean? In order to people, give people the strength to, to be able to nag- navigate the hostile world that you're talking about. If you don't, if you, for example, let me make it more concrete. Like I have students who come to the classroom at 18, 19 years old, and they've literally been gaslighted by multiculturalism in Australia. I put this in an article recently because they love to talk about we're the most successful multicultural nation in the world and I'm like it's literally Australia say that that's the official line and doesn't matter what side of politics they will all say that right um, that's mad. And it's literally... It's and we're li- on Plague Island, and I think that's mad. <laughs> it's <laughs> completely bogus, Whoa. right? It's, it's, the, it's the discourse. I mean, but to, to, to understand where that rhetoric comes from, in Australia you have, so the 21st of March, which is the International Day for the Elimination of Racism, or whatever it's called, the UN Day, which equally bullshit kind of days and whatever, but in Australia it's called Harmony Day, <laughs> right? And literally John Howard, the racist prime minister of the 90s and 2000s, changed it to, you know, and this... Anyway, so, so so people come out of school and they've been so on Harmony Day is when you wear your traditional dress, if you have a traditional dress, and if you don't, so if you're white, you wear orange, right? Oh. Anyway, <gasps> don't ask. Oh my God, this sounds like, this is like dystopian. But, but it's, it's reality. It's yeah, dystopian. so they come okay. to university and they come to my class and they might be in second year of university and, you know, we start. And they come with all of this because they feel... And particularly because I'm white, they feel that they have to perform this multicultural success story in front of me. And they'll talk about how, for example, this one woman came in and she said, have you read the Quran? And I said, well, you know, I've read bits and pieces of it. And she said, well, you know that it's a book of peace. And I said to her, "Okay, let's just I said, I'm very happy to hear that. But let's just start with the fact that you don't need to do this. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can roll roll back from this, you know, performance of like, I'm a good Muslim. Perform- right. Yeah. We don't need to do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is so. We're laughing because me, me and George and Teaser were talking a lot about this people performing, yeah, like and how insincere it is. I, mean, I don't mean it's to be not. insincere, but it's like, yeah, it's performance. But they feel because they've been gaslighted yeah. forever. They've been told that if you want to be in this country, this is the only way to be legitimate. So when I say yeah. you don't have to do that, and I, this is the kind of, and this is what makes me happy in my life when I get student feedback that says you gave us the space to be able to talk about the stuff. You know, and like, you know, when, when my good friend Yasser Morsi wrote his review of my book and he said it was, and he's, he's a therapist, and he said, your book was like therapy because I didn't necessarily learn anything new, but it just gave me the legitimacy to say, I have been gaslighted and what I know to be true as a brown Muslim man in this country is true. And this has been validated by your words. And that was like one of the most precious things that anybody ever said to me because I'm like, yeah, like we stop gaslighting everybody and pretending that not, that racism doesn't exist, you know, or that we should move forward. Like we were talking earlier, like solidarity is very important, 
But we cannot at the same time deny people's experience. And people are on at different stages in terms of their level. And that's this why building it. racial literacy is so important. You know, and it's not about me knowing it all and telling people this is, you know, the critique that's been wielded at me. And I'm like, no, I learn more. And I was saying this to the young people in the, I sound like a granny now, but in the workshop, they were all younger than me. I say, I've learned so much from you. And in my life, the times that I've learned the most is when I've sat with younger people for some reason, like, because academia is a shit show, as we all know, and everybody is too busy and lots of people are very arrogant and lots of people are too busy doing this networking stuff and they don't actually sit down and think together. Mm. And that's, I think, that's if we're going to be able, able to overcome anything, we at least need to start from this thinking together. And that right there, that's that speech that Alana just did. That is what I was <laughs> trying speech. to... That is what I was this morning with some other colleagues that we were recording with. I was trying to explain why Alana's my favourite. And that is what, like, that is why. Like... You have to meet people where they're at. Yes. And this is the problem we have on the left. Don't t stop telling people what to yes. think. It doesn't work. It actually doesn't, it just We're doesn't just work. We're just going to piss people off exactly. And but rightly so. But then we don't want to be apathetic and we don't want to be like, oh, well, the right, I've got a point. We don't want to do that. But no. it is, as you say, it's thinking together, talking together. And it's messy and complicated. And it will be. And there will be times that people say things to you that make you feel very uncomfortable. Happens to me all the time. And sometimes people say to me, oh, you need to be less, you need to be more thick skinned and you shouldn't take on, you shouldn't feel bad when people say, because you know, you know your stuff and you've been doing this for years. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. But, but at the same time, I have to listen to other people and they have, they have a point and they also come from an experience that I'll never have. Mm -hmm. I just never have, you know, if I'm mm -hmm. talking to, to Debbie, for example, you know, what it's like to be an Aboriginal person in Australia. I just don't have that experience and I will never have it. So obviously she's going to teach me a whole host of things that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. her and many other people who I'm in touch with. Alana, the next book. Oh, talk okay. to us about it. And talk to us about critical race theory. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so the next I, book is the next book a follow-on from why still, race still matters. No, not really. Okay, I mean, oh no. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, I will be building on certain things that I guess I opened up because it, actually that book, the last chapter was supposed to be completely different. So the last chapter, which is on anti-Semitism, I only had the idea of writing that while I, when I had already started the book because all of this stuff was happening with anti-Semitism and the Labour Party. Not that I focused too much on that. I wanted to broaden it out mm -hmm. um, and talk more globally about the issue. And it still is a massive issue that I think needs a lot more work. So mm -hmm. that bit will be in this book as well. Um, but actually, the last chapter was supposed to be on anti-racism. And so, like, what are we doing with all of this stuff, mm. right? And I don't think I did that in that book. I mean, I didn't do it. There's sort of a mention in the conclusion, um, but it doesn't actually work through, well, what do we have to do? Where are we going with it? So, so some of that will be there. But really, I guess what I wanted to do originally with this book was just noting this moral panic about something being called critical race theory that obviously we know has nothing to do with actual critical race theory. Um, it's suddenly, as you said earlier, it kind of seemed to have come out of the blue, right? And I think that quite a few people and good people have done, have made good responses. Um, I hear that David Theo Goldberg is coming out with a book on this. Maybe he's already finished it. I don't know. And he certainly wrote a good article, which I'm sure was the sort of the seed for it in the Boston Review. Somebody like Mark Lamont Hill, you may have seen, did a long video in which he kind of responds to, you know, this is actually what critical race theory is. And my point is that none of this is about what is like, we don't need to explain. This is not about critical race theory. No, this, talking, yeah, this, is, this is not about that, right? 
And I think there are several ways in which we can understand that. And one of the, I guess what I want to do with this book is try to, like I do with all my work, is think about how this concept or how this moral panic about critical race travels beyond the North American context. Because I think a lot of the work that will come inevitably come out, and there will be other people, so not just Goldberg, but other people will inevitably be writing about this, will be mainly focused on a North American context. But actually there are ways that this moral panic proceeds the current one in the US. So for example, if you look to France and the entire, which I do talk a little bit about in Why Race Still Matters, the attacks on decolonial thought and what they call indigenous thinking, which has nothing to do with indigenous studies. It's to do with, it's a response to actually to the success of the indigenous of the Republic, the mm-hmm. movement in France that began about 20 years ago now, who call themselves purposefully indigenous to you know recall the way in which the French um, spoke about people in North Africa during colonization, etc. So, so there's there's been this trend that's been ongoing for a number of years, and it's not you can't dissociate it from the global war on Muslims, so global mm-hmm. Islamophobia, because a lot of this has been a kind of like, for example, the French attack specifically is on people who are called. Um, you know, um, left Islamists, right? So that's just a loose translation from French. And you don't have to be Muslim to be a left Islamist. It's anybody on the left an who's anti-racist or decolonial who basically um, doesn't have a problem with Muslims because, you know, everybody else has a problem with Muslims. Um, and this has been legislated, So especially after the murder of the French schoolteacher, Samuel Paty. There was this, you know, very stringent law brought in uh, which, you know, kind of, outlaws all kinds of other things that like goes much further than the bans on hijab and, and you know, et cetera, in, in France that pre-existed it. But in order, you know, to really kind of um, prevent practicing Muslim people from being active in society. So you'll have an organization like the CCIF, which was an sort of Islamophobia watch kind of organization. I did some interviews with a, a few years ago that literally had to shut. It was literally made illegal. And this is just an organization that collects information about people who've been, you know, attacked in the street or received other forms of Islamophobic attack. And this was made, it was outlawed, right? So so basically there's all of this stuff that's been happening. So, and this is about, I think, the author- authoritarian state and the backlash to, as I said earlier, resistance rising from below. And we need to see it in that context. Therefore, what the actual content of critical race theory is irrelevant mm. to to all of this, right? And there's various other things I want to do in the book, which, you know, it's not, the ideas aren't fully developed, but I do think that there's a connection here between uh, what my uh, good friend and colleague Anna Esther Yunus, Palestinian scholar from Germany, calls the war on anti-Semitism, because there's a kind of a, a very it's about well, what kind of racism can we speak about and what kind of racism can we not speak about, right? And I think, and there's this kind of very odd and uncomfortable mobilization of indigeneity, which you see in the kind of the white working class thing. So we are the real indigenous people and these other people are usurping our position and calling themselves indigenous. And you also see it among Zionists, right? And of course, the global hegemonic status of anti-Semitism as the only form of racism, which is something that I've spoken about and how that, how that directly participates in, you know, dampening down or attack full, full frontally attacking black-led resistance. And so I think, it's, so, so this is why it's more of a book, in a sense, on anti-racism, mm-hmm. while coming at it from the perspective of this moral panic about critical race. But I guess the other thing that I want to do with it, and this is the part that's undercooked at the moment, and I'd love your opinions, and this is what I was chatting with these friends over the last couple of days, was how do we theorize this in terms of racial capitalism? 
because um, I think that there's a lot there's a lot to be said there about well if we think about racial capitalism as really being a theory or a methodology rather or a framework for understanding the the the, the progression or the production and reproduction of racial regimes over time right that's really what it's about so it shows that kind of that 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 progression over the centuries this is a new this is the new formation in which we exist now in which an object such as critical race becomes a mode of differentiation and can be used to in other words to 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 i spoke earlier about you know expendable populations or expellable populations so and and many theorists in the us or activists have spoken about how the war on critical race is actually an excuse for um, completely shutting off public schools or public education to black kids in particular, right? So if you're going to do this kind of thing, then you're no longer you're no longer welcome within public schools. So there are other things going on where something like this kind of this discourse about this completely abstracted idea of some theory that's got nothing to do with people's everyday lives can suddenly be mobilized to say, well, actually, you deserve to be in and you don't deserve to be, you know, you don't have a place here anymore. So it's also about kind of what models of the nation or, or, or of the state we're going to see in the future, which I think hooks up to all kinds of very worrying trends around um, just the public sphere, right? Yeah. You know? I think one thing... I mean, I could go on, no, but no, that's no, kind no, of where no. I'm going with I it at the moment. I think that one thing that sprung to mind, particularly when um, you were mentioning, um, when you spoke about anti-Semitism as well and the war on anti-Semitism, I think one thing that your work has helped me work through also... Um, Brendan and Aaron mm. and then Ben as well that come on the show is that the use of the use of basically the use of um of the use of anti-semitism in speech and in discourse whilst also um a disregard of the multi-classed multi-class issues faced by Jewish populations is something which I think is is it's just a huge thing mm. that is so hard for us to theorize and come to terms with anti, as anti-racist and i think that that's uh i think i've i think i've i i found my way through it and i think i'm able to talk to other anti-racists that happen to not be jewish that yeah. sort of see that see will, will, will present will say to me well it seems like everyone cares more about anti-semitism than they care about anti-blackness i'm like no they're saying that they do yeah. but they don't actually i know that sounds really simple but i do think yeah. that still remains a really quite a big thing within how we, we're going to be able to talk about these things particularly with regards to racial capitalism as well does that make sense if you think about the liberal state yeah which presents itself as anti or non-racist yes how does it do this while at the same time openly repressing black and brown people and migrant people and undocumented people etc how does it do it it needs a proxy which is what mm. i spoke about in the last book you know i don't want to repeat what i did already there but i think that there's ways of connecting it to this current moment that we're in it needs a proxy. It needs to be able to say that it's not racist. Not only in this way, we could connect it to, again, we spoke about it before the recording, the current Tory elections, mm -hmm. right, the leadership elections. So, you know, all this kind of amazement, especially internationally, with this idea that there are all these black and brown people who are go who are possibly going to become prime minister. And for many people, <laughs> George doesn't think so. East, East, East India Company 2.0, yeah? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's what we're, yeah. Well, exactly. And then yeah. you have, but you have all these people who understandably are saying, well, look, it doesn't really matter what their politics are. Isn't it amazing that they're black? No. Well, exactly. Well, we, all, <laughs> we all agree, but... 
this is what we've been sold. This is what neoliberalism has sold mm. people, this idea that it actually doesn't matter what the content is of what you're saying or what you're doing. It's who you are and what you are seen to represent. So all of these things, like the war on anti-Semitism, the elevation of these particular, and not just people in politics, but also in the media and television, movies, etc., you know, authors, you know, in the kind of cultural class, is kind of a proxy for actually doing so. So it, it permits, you know, via this, this absolute horrendous, as we said, you know, this this complete, you know, disregard for life and the ability to profit off the instrumentalized immiserization of particular populations, right? So, I mean, Ruth Gilmore would connect this to the prison industrial complex and the need that the state and private industry has for these categories of, you know, people who are targeted for premature death, mm. as, as she puts it, in order to continue the, the project of the state, which is to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And so, but because we have liberalism, we need at the same time to create this veneer, which keeps people at this comfort level, which connects to what we said earlier around how most people are like, oh, okay, well, yeah, there's there's a pandemic, but, you know, or there's this stuff or too many people are incarcerated, but, like, what can we do about it? It's mm. just the way it is. And then we see Netflix and we go, oh, cool, you know, there's <laughs> queer stories. Or, and it's great. Like, I'll yeah. watch it as well. And, I, and I've got a 12-year-old mm. daughter who's Indian and she... She loves Olivia Rodrigo and she goes, you know, it's great that she's a woman of color. And I'm like, yeah, it is great. You know, for a young kid like that, it is great because otherwise it's some blondie. Yeah. Yeah. But, but then is it, but then is it though? But it's not I'm enough. So, this it's is not, what I mean. I'm really and starting to it's hard to, to get think, that over to a 12 no, year old because I, I honestly, what you just said, Alana, I think even like three years ago, I probably would have said exactly that. Yeah. But now I'm like, I'm, I, I've even said on this show, like representation matters. Yeah. Um, but now I really feel like I've gone like the complete other way. Like mm. I, I do. Um, it's insidious. It is really insidious. But I mean, then how do we? Ha- but then we're so um, invested in popular culture and media, myself included, yeah. and being like your daughter growing up and seeing yourself represented in a capitalist frame of society like yeah. what that, that gives me a that, that shouldn't be what gives me a comfort in my sense of self but we don't have anything I know else. we don't have anything else I feel like you know my partner is very sort of you know strident about when my daughter goes on and they're like well it's capitalism yeah. and I'm like she's 12 like you know it's, kind of, it's really unfair <laughs> no, 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 no but it's no. unfair because is, you then is. you're not you know it's not like everywhere around there's a proliferation of social movements that young people particularly kids like what can they get in? I mean okay there's some oh, climate Greta, strike stuff yeah but that's kind of it right and she's that, yeah you know that's complicated in itself like I mean I have to say that in one. Australia the, the the girl the the young woman who's sort of at the face of the student climate movement is a is a woman of color, yeah. woman of color. So that's you know. But I understand that there are kids who they love music or they love mm-hmm. movies. And my daughter wants to be an actor. She's in you know performing arts high school. So it's like that's all about that. Mm. And you don't want to burst their bubble. But at the same time, how shit have we been at creating conditions for them to see the world otherwise? Mm-hmm. We haven't, you know, we haven't been good at that, you know. And you know, we can talk about ad nauseum about you know the importance of the work that we do in the classroom and how liberating that can be, but it's still within the corporate university where everything's commodifiable. Like I get so angry that I'll go into meetings and talk about institutional racism in the university and they'll all be like, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, etc. And then, you know, I'll write some, and this is why I've stopped doing it, by the way, write some Guardian article about 
whatever mm-hmm. and then the university puts it in its annual report and I'm like get lost I'm yeah. just not doing it anymore I don't yeah. want to be recuperated in this way in order to give you a front yeah. for your racism mm-hmm. and your amassing of profit literally <laughs> you can tell I'm a bit angry no 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 but like you would have heard us I think Alana you would have heard us talk about this on the show we have the exact, well, very similar issue with surviving society. Like, mm. since we started five, nearly six years well, ago now, this, this yeah. institution has changed yes. and it's starting to value, quote unquote, value this kind of independent creative mm, yes, scholarship yes, of course. and is looking to put it on their, as you said, hypothetical newsletter or use yes. it in ways that is not what the root comes, that the, the root of what our intellectual project is. And it's like, how do you find a way of um, of democratising knowledge production, racial literacy and the way that we're doing here without the fucking university like taking it and saying, oh, look, like it came from here sort of thing. You, you have know? to actually refuse it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to be in a position of being able to do able it. To and do this that, is yeah. kind of when we were speaking earlier about yeah. meeting people where they're at. This is where it's yeah. unfair for somebody in my position which is very privileged to say, oh, you should all practice politics of refusal because literally people are precarious. They need to put bread on the table. Mm-hmm. Like I've I've reached a position where I can say, actually, I hope that my bosses aren't listening to this. But I'm, <laughs> they won't be. <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> I'm like, no, but I, I have divested myself from that. I don't apply for research funding. Mm-hmm. I have a few times, but I've always been unsuccessful. And I'm sick to the back teeth of seeing the reports that come back. They're so patronizing. Anything to do with race. I'm like, why would I do it? But if I was at an earlier stage of my career, I would have to do it. Mm-hmm. And there are certain universities that force you to do it, to play mm-hmm. that game and to show willing or to be involved in DEI, DIU, mm-hmm. whatever they're called, you know, committees. And I, luckily, luckily, I'm in a place where I don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, I literally, I sit in my classroom with my students and then I talk to people like you and that's all I do. I don't get involved in anything else because I don't want to get them any legitimacy. But I do, do want to say though, Alana, just to give you credit, and I know um, that <laughs> just to give you credit and also um, definitely mention of Alison Phipps here as well, yeah. you guys make so many resources for us no. though. Like uh, that needs to get a shout out. The, the <laughs> open resources that you guys put together, you and Alison in particular, mm. I'd have to shout you out. Like, is incredible. But that's why I do it. Because but, but that is, but that that's the work. Like, yes. that is so... I, I can't believe there's not more people that do that sort because of thing. Because people are obsessed with intellectual property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, am yeah. sorry. Yeah, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I find it amazing that people will have a radical discourse and then they'll literally jump online and say things, that, and I've been attacked for this, that you're literally taking money away from... I've seen like black scholars yeah. are losing money because you're putting PDFs online. And I'm like, I don't want academia publishing you work in. Yeah. But like, no, you one, know, <laughs> no one's making money Who's from academia. Money? Yeah, yeah. And if you're at the level that you're making so much money from your books, you can give them away for free. Yeah. And I thought Robin Kelly said this at one yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, He's like, yeah. I don't need any money from this book. Like, please go to LibGen. Like, I don't care. Yeah. You know, okay. Maybe. We need to be careful with that, but the point, the, yeah, but the point, <laughs> the point is that you know, we, what is this knowledge for? It's yes. all we work in public institutions, right? Mm-hmm. It's paid for by the taxpayer. If we just want to be very basic about it, unleash that knowledge. Like I don't, mm-hmm. and I know publishers, especially I, and I do. I publish with small publishers who struggle, mm-hmm. and 
okay, it's important to support them because if we don't have a Pluto Press or a Z Books or whatever, okay, Z Books be bought by Bloomsbury, mm. so they can get lost. But yeah. you know, we do need those publishers, and they do survive on. But what they've done, particularly Pluto, and to a certain extent, Verso has done. It's kind of Verso democ- workers have just been their unions just been recognised. Oh, Big up that's Verso great. workers. Anyway, well sorry, carry on. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the point is that they do these, you know, cheaper ebooks and mm. sales and so on, which make it more accessible. But, but for so many publications, like eighty quid for a book. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I really believe in sharing resources. I actually don't care if people plagiarize me. No, but then Alana, <laughs> I do like your stuff. I do like your stuff. No, on, I mean my teaching materials. And I'm yeah. trying to work through writing with my um, friend and colleague, um, Belle Parnell Berry, about mm. build on your work or your writing, your blog on power plagiarism. Because oh, yes. I do feel like that stuff, particularly, Listen. like it's so racialized <laughs> and so gendered and it's so. Like we can talk about people being obsessive intellectual property whilst also at the same time people fucking stealing each other's work like in ways that doesn't... No, I mean, I meant like the stuff that I teach, mm. right? It's not original work in a sense. I might put my spin on it. Yeah. But what I'm doing is I'm collecting all of this material and teaching it and putting it in di- digestible forms for people to use. But that that's what I mean. You can't, in to my mind, it would be immoral to, to turn that into, let's say, a textbook where somebody said to me, do a MOOC, mm. Yeah. But of course, my own work or our own work, the research that you've done, I mean, part of me is reticent, yes, to talk about the ideas that I have for this book because I do know that, the, you know, you put them out there <laughs> listen, and then, listen, yeah. Don't, yeah, don't say too exactly. much. On here. Exactly. You they don't want to say it too they much. Will. Exactly. Will. And that's different. Yeah. Um, I do think that's important simply because, you know, we, we work hard. And as yeah. you say, it's very racialized, it's very gendered. Um, and we see who get who gets the kudos and who, and who doesn't. And mm. so, yeah, a little bit of gatekeeping is important. But but at the same time, pretending that all of these ideas just plopped into your head, you know, and it wasn't through this these conversations with other people. And then you have to cite those conversations, even if it was just an email or a text. You have to say, oh, I was chatting with Chantal and she said blah, blah, you know, or, you know, whatever. It's really important, I think. We've I've seen you write about this on Twitter and I think I've spoken to you about it as well. Like the, the influx of trade books that are writing mm. about race and class that are not citing any of the work that we talk yeah. about um, on this show, that you talk about, that all, all of our work is built on basically and presenting it as individualised within a neoliberal framework. Like, it is, it is fucking annoying. Like, it is annoying. Yeah. Like, it's actually the thing that probably annoys me the most at the moment. Like that, Like, it's all the time. Like, and I just... Is there no shame? Like, do you really think you came up with that? Like, it's just, just um, mad. Like... I, th- I think that scholarship is... It's a Western thing, right? It's very kind of how we're educated over here. Same kudos for yourself, right? Do you think? Yeah. It's crazy, though, like, some of it. The political economy of publishing has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, I think there are certain people who are being given contracts to write books, let's talk about race, because that's what I know about, who are not race scholars. Um, They might be journalists, for example. I've just reviewed a book by a journalist. It's coming out next week. I think it's going to cause a few explosions in (laughs) in Australia. But, yeah, it's called, um, the book is called how to lose friends and influence white people. So you can imagine that from the title alone, I wasn't very impressed. Um, Anyway, I mean, the point is, the point is, I think that um, the political economy of publishing sets people up for this. Yeah. But there are creative ways that you could get around this. So let's say you're somebody in good faith and you, there are people who sort of study race and they want to do a trade book and that's okay. And then the publishers tell them you can't cite we can't put footnotes. 
you could create an online resource to accompany the book, for example, right? Um, there's no reason why there are not you couldn't use more creative ways of actually showing the trajectory, the lineage of your thinking. It's just that people don't do it because, as you said, Tiso, it's about you know claiming it for yourself and pretending to be the one who came up with it. But if you know race work at all, if you know this body of literature, you'll know where it comes from. Mm. And you're saying, come on, this is just, you did not invent this yourself. And I think that's really unfair because the, the, the problem with it is, is that, and it's not about, you know, I want to make money from my books or something like that, but it is a little bit galling to see people literally <laughs> make money and go to all the literary festivals and yeah. the old speaking opportunities and everything to talk about things in a really half-baked way. And, and the reason why this work is being published as trade books is because it doesn't challenge the status quo. Right. So publishers are able to say, well, we're dealing with race because this is the hot topic of the moment. But the conclusions that they have to draw always have to be liberal. Mm. They have to hold out a fig leaf mm. or olive, well, fig olive leaf, branch. No, olive branch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> olive branch. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, I'd rather not see those books. Because mm. then students come into the classroom and they say, have you read? Have you and then you have to walk them back from that. Yeah. Isn't this a story that we tell ourselves? This isn't the story of the nation. And so I was thinking about what you're talking about, the critical race theory. Yeah. What it's effectively doing is trying to refashion how we talk about the nation. Yeah. So they're telling people, so maybe it, it's the way capitalism's adapted to this new way of being. We have to tell a new story to get these people back on side. So all this, all these forms of resistance that we're seeing, mm. it's like a pushback against that. Yeah. So it's, a, it's yeah. Yeah, no, that possibly is, a, that possibly is, a, I'm just thinking about like a trade book, like ours, mixed race, I grew up in a white town, mm. um, I found my way through, they've become and then, tropes now, and then right? I'm, and that, and meritocracy got me through, like it's that type of thing that but perhaps even, is in response to the, na mm. yeah, but, but to the even, nation adapting. But I hear lots of people talking, even like cliche lines, I hear young black boys talking about how they grew up in the street, like every young black person I spoke to now seems to have like a hard time by life, and I'm like, it's, it's, it's so cliche. It's not true of everyone, yeah, right? Yes, so if you think about it, that's really nefarious mm -hmm. in terms of how, right? Because it's it's racializing, yeah. right? It's mm -hmm. literally it's saying you can tell your story, but you can only tell it about it in this way. Yes, mm -hmm. and you know this is what I say. I had some very interesting conversations with my students about inclusion and representation. And as I said earlier, there are many people who who cling to this because they 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 want to see themselves reflected back, right? And it's mm -hmm. important to them. But then there was one young woman who's Rwandan, and she. She migrated to Australia and she went to high school in Australia and she spoke about her experience of like, I think she was involved in some kind of organization where they were invited to different schools to talk about their experiences. And she said, I didn't really have the language for it at the time, but every time I'd finished one of these talks, I'd always feel really depressed. And I only realized in my later years that it was because I was being forced to tell this trauma story mm. and that there was no other room for me to tell it differently. Mm. It was literally sort of like a rags to riches story, you know? Mm. I came here and then it was so terrible, but now I'm in Australia and things are better. And she said, that's not my story. It was a story that I was being forced to tell to a certain extent. And that is actually, Alana, that I, that's actually helped me a little bit because that is being more forgiving of the people that we're talking about, I guess. like, And that is what I need to be more of, like, as actually, like, the structure, the state, how neoliberalism is making us respond in this way. And actually, it's still not helping our sense of self, but it's an it's almost an inevitability. I think in that people of... think that everybody's got a cunning plan, an evil plan, right? I don't think that it's so, I think, okay, certain people do, but I think, I think. <laughs> no, I hear you, I hear and you. And I think that, you know, again, it's about this lack, these, lack of opportunities for us to sit together and to mm. nut through the ideas and this vision of like you know 
it's almost like we're back to the talented tenth. You know, we need these, you know, these ra race men, mm -hmm. as they call them back race in the Du Bois days, yeah. you know, like who are going to tell us how things are done. And if we all read this book, you know, just look at the blurbs of mm. these books. Like everybody must read this in order to understand how race functions and change your way of being mm. or, you know, white people need to change. And, and, you know, it's through reading. And of course, that's not how race works. And in fact, it can be maintained through creating again these veneers mm. of like this is the solution this little package that i've sold you can be the solution mm. but you can understand how individuals who are totally they're not in community with anybody and they're often in the professional managerial class where this is what's this is what's given kudos mm. i don't want to excuse them completely but i do think that they they don't have the opportunity to see things differently mm. and that's to a certain extent on on the anti-racist movement yeah, a little no, bit. You know, right, like, you're right, bring it back to us. Like, I think you're totally right. I'm re And that's actually really helped me actually thinking about those things. Like, actually, what, spa what space have we left open for this to happen? Yeah. Love that. Mm. <laughs> um, Alana's <laughs> going to be joining us for another um, bonus episode for, pa yeah, for patrons. Um, listeners, we'll be back again next week, of course. And Alana, thank you so, so much. Thank for you so much for having studio. me. So much fun. And to see you guys in person is like oh, a dream come oh, true. Oh, so nice. <laughs> so good. Thank you. Thanks, Alana. <laughs> Bye. So, uh, don't, don't go yet. Oh. I, I don't usually talk on the oh, podcast. Oh, here we go. Everybody relax. Alana's in the studio. I just want to say, you just raised the bar. Again. 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 Should we just end the, po we just end the podcast? No, the, podcast the, the, the whole thing's finished. <laughs> it's done. If you want, if you want to come on our show, it's over. The bar's way too high. <laughs> I'm just saying, but I'm, I need to get it off my chest. <laughs> fabulous, <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. That's fabulous. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 